How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So, I'm the surprise oh. guest. There was there was gonna there was gonna be one. But, uh, <laughs> I uh, what, what did what did Hassan says? Um, apparently, Hassan saying that I know more than Astro. Okay, thank you, man. One of the smartest Thomas we know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Hassan. <laughs> wow. Oh, come on, Christian. You, uh, you're you're inflaming my pride uh, today. I need I need to do more penance to to, to remove that vice from myself. It's, it's not. A, yeah, I'm I'm am just messing with you. It's not. It's not me. It, it's somebody else. Uh, she'll be on yeah. here later. The uh, epic breaking. Uh, e p o c h. Epic breaking. Uh, fact that there will be a woman on Militant Thomist. So, this uh, it's the first time for everything, I guess. We got to get up with the time. Yeah, right Master now. immediately goes, oh, that girl. Okay, was obvious. <laughs> oh. oh. Everybody already knows who it is who's on Discord. Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah everybody on Discord. Oh, never mind. You guys already yeah. know. They could guess, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and and to keep the to keep the hierarchy of of gender going, um, I already I already warned her that you guys you guys are gonna harass. So, so Bro, yeah, I already kind of warned to to keep to keep the hierarchy of general. I'll uh to keep the hierarchy of gender. I'll make sure I keep my finger right next to the mute button and unsuspectingly mute her uh, every two or three minutes, uh, just so you know. Just don't mention the L word. The, the L word? Oh, the L word. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The L word. Okay. I know. The I know L what the L word. word is. Which way? Which L word? There's two L words. There's a second one? Oh, yeah. There's two L words. You mean how the much, two when you translate them? Do you mean the two when you translate them into Latin? Because um, it becomes two words then, right? I'm I'm confused. Uh, which which uh, word you're Check talking? Check the about. private chat on Streamlabs. I guess she just really hates the L words. Oh 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 no no no! I was talking about this other L word, Lagrange. Oh, she doesn't Second. hate Lagrange. She doesn't hate Lagrange. She just doesn't think that he's as good at doing what the previous commentators did. But yeah, I would I would agree with that. But you you have to read. Um, in, in the context of Garrigou Lagrange's life, uh, and actually, did you see the did you see like the manifesto Minard uh, just wrote? 
about how great Lagrange, uh, kind of saving Lagrange from a lot of his detractors in the post. Uh, I haven't, the new I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's like 150 pages. It's insane. It's on Academia. That's um, crazy. Is it on his uh, his one? Yeah, it, it's really good. I listened through like three quarters of it, and I'll probably finish up listening you to listen, it today. Listen through? What are you talking about? Yeah, I have a I have a um, PDF reader for like things that I can just kind of um, like you. Yeah, I mean for like I, I don't like listen to the Summa or anything like that. I only will listen to books that are like prose ish stuff, you know. Uh, but when it comes to uh, yeah, when it comes to Lagrange's teaching conditions, uh, he he really focused his commentaries on the Summa towards the realities of of a classroom uh, note sort of environment. Uh, so it, it's doing something a lot different than uh, what a lot of the earlier uh, commentarial um, tradition was doing. You spell Lagrange as Lagrange, lag range. I can see a bunch of his stuff, but I can't find this thing on on Lagrange. Uh, I listened to Summa Contra Gentiles. Is that bad? Um, it it depends. Um, I I think I think it's fine. If uh, if you should honestly, you should just read through uh, How to Read a Book by Adler. Um, if, if you're going through like the sort of first or second stage of, well, the first stage is just kind of getting your outline of the, of the book uh, and looking through chapter headings and stuff like that. But uh, if you're, if you're going through uh, the, the second stage, which is just kind of reading through, actually, I think that's the third stage, which is just kind of reading through. If you're going through that stage, then yeah, it's fine, but you shouldn't leave it at that. Uh, you should eventually go back and after having a vision of the whole kind of go go to the parts. Um, but there is there is something uh, after that brief intermission, and I'm starring questions right now to answer once we get to Q&A. I'll make sure I keep up on this, unlike, unlike last time. So... So uh, for for those who what am I oh yeah, yeah yeah that's what we're talking about sorry it's a long time right now um, but for those who are out there uh, no what was I what was I gonna say I completely forgot is he just cut out. Or I think I cut out. Am I back? Yeah, you did. You did for a sec. Yeah. Okay. So we were supposed to. Yes, we're supposed to be talking about Timothy Gordon, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So Timothy Gordon. Um, let me see if I can throw the the link in there. We're supposed. To, uh, and then I, I actually meant to ask you a, a certain um, uh, Twitter mutual of of mine. Oh, uh, that is at the. I think it's at the Angelicum right now. Um, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to dox him if he's, if I, I, I think that's public. Um, but he, he wanted to have a stream sometime this week going and talking about, uh, chastity, uh, within marriage, the marital debt, um, and, and all those sundry topics, basically just generally kind of a discussion of, um, traditional moral theology and, and sexuality, uh, with me and you, but we'll, 
we'll uh, get into that later. But right now, uh, I kind of just wanted to do a brief sort of uh, discussion of what Timothy Gordon's uh, – it's not his latest stream. Sorry, I'm kind of – his latest stream. Okay, let me – welcome to Rules for Retrogradians. Oh, thank you for welcoming. Mm-hmm. It was nine days ago. It's called Surprise Livestream on Marital Debt with co-host Steph Gordon. So, sent it right there in the live chat. Actually, I don't think links work, so just go to his page if you want to get it. But basically, uh, he, he discusses throughout the live stream, and I wanted to listen to like the first two minutes. I didn't want to listen to too much more than that because I think the 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 sort of gauntlet is thrown down uh, pretty clearly pretty quickly uh, so i don't think we need to listen through uh, that much but uh he he's doing this live stream because uh timothy and his wife steph have have been known for uh being very supportive of uh, on the one hand um the traditional teaching when it comes to the submission of women to their husbands which again great thing um, and then on the other hand, uh, they've also been known for um, holding what they view uh, to be traditional Catholic teaching uh, when it comes to sexuality. And this takes two parts. Uh, on the one part, it takes uh, the the emphasis on the marital debt, which obviously for anybody uh, who who has uh, read their New Testaments, they, they should know the teaching on the marital debt uh, that uh, from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, that your body is not your own and your spouse's body is not their own, uh, but rather that you, you render service uh, unto your spouse um, in, in times of uh, temptation and need. So uh, that, that part, uh, great. I really appreciate the fact that he's focusing on that stuff. Um, people who are out there crying about that, uh, they can take a hike because this is very clear. Um, and, and it's not like this is something which is, ancient like you have you have popes like 500 years ago talking about this is something that uh, it's continually spoken about i think i think it's spoken of actually directly in the catechism right yeah from uh, uh, yeah but to be fair like most people misunderstand what it actually means even when they're aware of the doctrine okay but yeah it's, it's even it's even something yeah. uh what i mean to illustrate is it's not something like that the church that uh, talked about a very long time ago then all of a sudden he's out there and we're out there uh trying to do a resourcement of something that is irrelevant no this is this is something which uh is a precept um i it, i would say it's a precept of natural law as well and then it's re-emphasized in uh in revelation so uh okay don't answer no we're answering questions right now buddy sorry if i didn't clarify that but I am starring questions, so I will go back. So, um, oh, you, oh, you responded. It's kind of a personal question. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to. I don't want to answer that either. Uh, so, um, what was what was I in the middle of saying? That basically we we appreciate. Okay. Yeah. The the marital that side of it completely fine. But then uh, it, it it takes another his, his teaching takes another twist. Um, <laughs> you can say that. 
Look, I I, I, I want to be I want to be mild, uh, you know. Al- although this does this does get me uh, a bit upset uh, because I know that a lot of people just aren't told about this, and I know that it's hurting people's spiritual lives. Yeah. Um, so so this this does get me a little bit upset. So I, I apologize if if I do get um, too rowdy here. But the 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 twist that it does take is essentially that sexuality or at least uh, the marital act is of such a nature as to be practiced as much as possible uh, as much as re- <laughs> I, I don't know how to phrase it as much as reasonable uh, and, and yeah and his his and logic was uh because it has being it's better than not existing because yeah, yeah, he he did make the analogy <laughs> that just as being is better than non-being, so, uh, so sex is having relations than is yeah. better than not having relations. So yeah, uh, I just I just wanted to play the first two or three minutes just to show you guys I'm I'm, I'm not actually making this up. Um, that that's what he believes, and and something I appreciated uh, throughout this presentation of his is he he th- uh, threw the gauntlet down, took the hammer, and smashed this other guy in the head. He's responding to with the authority of Saint Thomas Aquinas. So I, I think that it would be uh, fun. Uh, I don't think fun's the best word. It would be appropriate uh, for us to look actually at a section of St. Thomas Aquinas where he treats this question of, um, of the frequency of marital inti- uh, intimacy and uh, how it is a good and then also how, it, uh, how intemperance uh, can express itself uh, within it. So let me... Uh, just just get right into it. And I'm going to put it on after speed uh, just to get through it. Oh, you love Gantar? You know, they should, these Here's ads should pay me for playing their ads on stream. I should get Let's paid. map out the tasks for your Gantar in this list. Come on. <sighs> Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. Today you get a bonus show. I had Michael Hitchborn on earlier. We had a great talk. It turns out that we're doing a bonus show on the marital debt. <laughs> And here's Steph. It turns out that uh, my favorite Catholic publishing company, which is Crisis Publications associated with Sophia Institute Press, published an interesting article on the marital debt. And specifically, the author is a young guy named Adam Lucas. And he made some really interesting points. And by interesting, I mean bad. It's very bad. Some really, really wayward points about the marital debt. And the, the article is called The Trouble with Debates About Marital Debt. And we thought, hey, uh, this article by Mr. Lucas uh, points out some places where he has the audacity not to say that particularly Steph's book asked not that he said that not you were wrong but that whether or not you're wrong or right she's definitely right it's very clear he thinks it's it might sound weird to assert the marital debt so what i wanted to do today as steph gets this together sorry i'm just posting links to the show you're seeing me do right now what i'm doing over there usually that's right i'll just i'll just read the article while she gets that done and then we have three big response points but um this is a really maybe when i'm live i need to get lexi to like sit over there and and deal with that stuff that's a brilliant idea timothy thank you really clear issue and folks this is what's happening in modernist catholicism folks that don't like the clear answer to this question is there a marital debt they just talk around it and he does that a lot so so let me just read this to you and we'll, we'll start responding in real time but i like to get out at least the first few paragraphs rather than jumping in after every paragraph he says the trouble with debates about marital debt Every so often, the topic of marital debt comes up in the Catholic infosphere, causing much consternation and debate. Someone says something inflammatory, someone calls them an idiot, and before long, marital debt is all over Catholic social media. 
anyway, on the Catholic internet knows it is back in vogue again with hundreds of posts a day. The subject has dominated my timeline as seen below. And he makes a ironical reference to a picture of his Instagram, which has not much action. Then he says, so marital isn't such a hot issue. Now, once again, we love Christ. We love Sophia Institute. This is just a swing and a miss article. Um, so he says, in fact, I'm late to the party. Is the controversy mainly blazed almost a year ago with the release of the aptly attributed, this is Timothy Gordon's book, Ask Your Husband. I'd like to say, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, John, yeah, that's a uh, diehard. Welcome to the party, pal. I mean, don't, hey, bro, don't get to parties late. You want to write on it? That's cool. You want to party when the party is partying. <laughs> right. You want to you hit it when it's popping, bro. Um, I don't know what this, the aptly attributed, Mrs. Timothy Gordon, is. it holds his channel and he was just giving us so much love. I love that. Thank you, Tim and Steph. So we, we love that love. We want to be the best woman in the world. And I don't know what that little parenthetical, the aptly attributed, Mrs. Tim. Nevertheless, enough embers remain scattered throughout the Catholic world that fires pop up periodically. And the topic has been on my mind personally as my wife and I prepare for our first child. Well, good. That means let's get all these bad ideas out uh, right at the beginning, Adam. Let's get them all out. You got a long road to hoe, and we're going to help you out today. And that sounds cocky and a little bit smarmy. I don't mean it that way, but you got some bad ideas. Let's work through them. Well, we've been there so with, the, with the first kid and then the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and sixth and seventh. And I'm not trying to pull rank or anything. I'm just saying that we've had experience through these sorts of things. So when we're talking about the marital... So I'm one kid number two, so I have slightly more authority than the person writing this article, but I have less than Timothy Gordon. So in other words... <laughs> pulling rank hassan sorry least authority here uh what are you talking about ha wait hassan does have all of his uh discord children though uh, what are you talking about bro <laughs> just that's one of the worst things you've ever said that's really disturbing oh, thanks man. christian yeah they have seven kids i'm i'm on i'm on number two though and Kids come in a little over th uh, like three and a half weeks. So definitely, um, definitely keep us in your prayers because the last month is literally the worst. It's literally the worst. It's like, imagine having like a bowling ball tied to your stomach and trying to move around. I mean, it's not the worst for me. Uh, I'm, I'm just chilling, but the worst for her that we've been there and done that so we're speaking from some experience here right thank you for saying that i mean this is the person being attacked mrs timothy gordon <laughs> it says and the topic has been on my mind personally is my wife and i prepare for our first child and i didn't read this part if my friends are to be believed i prepare to forego marital relations for the next 18 years now in kind of based based foregoing marital relations for the next 18 years such a chad move actually there, there's some there's some saints that actually did that uh right yeah yeah after they had a kid or a few kids, they just actually that used to be a common practice among Catholics. So, yeah, cucky world or what? I don't know what else to call it. Wait, wait, what? In, in what? Now. Wait, what? If my friends would be wait, 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 excuse wait, 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 what? Okay, okay. <sighs> that that that, that the topic up. has been on my mind personally is my wife and I prepare for our first child, and I didn't read this part. If my friends are to be believed. I prepare to forego marital relations for the next 18 years. Now, in kind of cucky world, or what, I don't know what else to call it. Not, not cucky world, that's mean. In, in slightly lower testosterone world, this, what? if my friends are to be believed business, means, oh, my friends are all telling me to forego marital relations for the next 18 years. Bro, that ain't funny. You know what you need to do? You need to get new friends, okay? If your friends have testosterone, here's, here's the normal range. And your friends are saying that they forgo marital relations. They're down here. They're in the negatives. Get new friends. Rip. I'm not joking now. You made a little joke, but in every jest is truth. 
Thanks. you showed too much of your hand there. I'm, I'm not joking. I, I mean, for your good, Adam Lucas, and for your wife's good, you're probably never. a really good dude. Do not have friends like this. And never forego or even like joke about that. That's Don't. serious. You know, I, the reason. Never forego marital relations. Did you realize that was like a common practice during like Lent? I'm, pr I'm pretty sure that, uh, that in some places it was even Episcopally mandated. Like, I think, let, let me think about it. I read, I read something somewhere one time. So high authority right here that there was in, in like some places in medieval Catholicism, there was over a hundred days out of the year, um, that were days, uh, to, to forego, forego marital relations. This is like a common, common practice. You know, Hassan, I read it somewhere, so don't make that face. Um, it wasn't at you. Oh, wasn't making a face at me. Okay. But yeah, uh, when, when it comes to uh, times of foregoing marital relations, that's something which is a which is something uh, at some times uh, ecclesiastically imposed. And then definitely something recommended by traditional spiritual writers. Uh, the 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 Catechism of the Council of Trent. Uh, actually, I'll pull I'll pull that up right now. Actually, um, if if you just want the the sort of classic uh, magisterial text on this before we get into uh, uh, before we get into the uh, this is why this is why I need Lexi over there. She could have looked up the reference for me. Now I have to try to talk and look up the reference before we look at the text from Saint Thomas. Um, Great. I'm going to have to. Hassan, can you find the text for me? No. You can't? Oh, you are so mean. What You're going to make me look for, for this exactly. text, though. Are you just looking for the Catechism of Trent? Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking for the. No, I'm looking for the section of the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, on matrimony where it talks about foregoing marital relations. Um, okay. Sacrament of the Eucharist. Okay. I think it's in the part on matrimony. Well, yeah, obviously it's in the part of matrimony. Yeah. Tell me. Um, yeah, matrimony. Uh, okay. There are a lot of sections on this, but it's only duty. I think it's under duties of married people. I think it's on I I the use of marriage at two eighteen. Two eighteen. Okay. I think so. Use of marriage. And this is wasn't the section I was looking for. No. Yeah, I Rip. think it is on the duties of married people. I don't think it is there. Just really, did I make this? Did I make this up or something? Maybe. <laughs> is Lent mentioned in that portion? Uh, no. No? No. Does, is the word abstinence there or refrain? Do you not I remember? Know, bro. I don't know. Did I make this up? I didn't make it up. Hey. I, I've, I've sent it to people before. 
You've sent it to somebody? Yeah. I don't know who I sent it to, though. Okay. Adultery. Dang. Dissolvability. Unity of marriage. Dude, do you remember a section uh, from... It. Preparation of body. Page 158. I know it. <laughs> the dignity of so great a sacrament also demands married persons abstain from the marriage debt for some days previous to communion. This observance is recommended by the example of David, who, when about to receive the showbread from the hands of the priest, declared that he and his servants have been clean from women for three days. Yeah, that's close enough. Yeah. But I know there's I know there's another reference in there too. But that's close enough. We can uh, there's another one. Motive and ends of marriage. Oh, uh, yeah. Third, third reason for marriage has been added as a consequence of the fall. The account of the loss of original innocence, the passions began to rise in the rebellions against right reason. And man, conscious of his own frailty and unwilling to fight the battles of the flesh, is supplied by marriage with an antidote by which to avoid the sins of lust. For fear of uh, pornea, fornication, says the apostle, let every man have his own wife, let every woman her own husband. And a little while after, after having recommended to persons a temporary abstinence from the marriage debt, to give themselves to prayer, he adds, return together again, lest Satan tempt you for your incontinency. Is that the section you're looking for? Definitely not. No? Okay, use of marriage. As every blessing to be obtained from God by holy prayer, the faithful are to be taught sometimes to abstain from the marriage debt to devote themselves to prayer. Let the faithful understand that this... It does mention Lent. Religious continence, according to the proper and holy injunction of our predecessors, is particularly to be observed for at least three days before communion and oftener during the solemn fast of Lent. Dang. It, you know, we're actually this, you know, whoever said, where, where is he? Vincent, you said this debunking is not going good. Well, we actually found like more text than we were even looking for. I think it might actually be. Um, Okay, that, that's good enough. Three days before communion and oftener during lunch. Okay, let's continue. Oh, wait, wait, I can answer this question. Uh, here you go. Imagine there's a school shooting and a student wasn't baptized, so asked uh, someone to baptize him. Yes, he can baptize him. And I think that um, we, we're never afraid to talk about anything controversial, especially things that make feminists angry. And marital debt is the crown gem in that tiara. But oh. I mean, it's so important. We we get marriages are in a crisis, and I'd say on the top of the reasons of why is because sexual relationships within a husband and wife, or sexual relations between a husband and wife have gotten so unhealthy. So this is why we, you know, we're out here talking about it. And I think a lot of people who have a, a right sense of, of the, the crisis are out here talking about it. Um, we're going to continue reading the article mm -hmm. and giving commentary as we go, but consider this, parish and retrogrades. The Catholic bimillennial tradition, magisterium and tradition, calls sex relations between husband and wife properly ordered Unit of procreative sexual relations, the marital act, meaning the formal, the platonic formal act that marks this person as your number, <laughs> this is my number one. This is my dearest love. Stop. 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 Okay. 
Stop. Look, look, Timothy might watch this. Let's let's not be stop. Stop, bro. Stop. Stop, bro. Stop. I'm, I'm gonna mute you if you don't stop. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, he's muted. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so so to clarify, the, the platonic form of marriage isn't uh sex. The platonic form of marriage is Christ in the church. And the and the form that the, the form of the sacrament of matrimony is consent. Um so in case you were wondering. Um It's not that funny. Calm down. No, but you have to realize something about Hassan. Hassan, Hassan, Hassan reads about this like fifty-seven hours uh, a day. Um, so <laughs> it's it's like really funny to him. How can really you call, to... how can you call intercourse the platonic form of marriage? What? Yeah. What, what did you just do? What What is even a platonic form? <laughs> What's a platonic form? Yeah, well, the, I, you know, I, I, yeah, because the, the platonic form, I I don't even know what he meant by that, bro, because the platonic form is, is some sort of immaterial reality on which every single instantiation of something participates in. So he's like saying that like every merit, you know, that I'm I'm not going to go down this trail. Yeah, um, and I mean, it would also that would cause a lot of problems. Too much. I can't like, watch this. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty. This would, it's pretty brutal. This would cause a lot of problems for, say, the marriage of um, the Blessed Virgin as well. Yeah, yeah. But we'll get into that in uh, in a second. We still we still yeah. have to get through a few more minutes of watching uh, before we just just to make sure everybody's clear because he hasn't really gotten into the points he was making. Uh, the yeah. thing that sets our relationship for number one. This is my number one. This is my dearest love among flesh people. I should get with those big foam fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Why did he say that? And, and the thing that sets our relationship apart, you Manichaeans out there, you body mm -hmm. haters, you flesh haters, Gnostics, is that Steph and I have relations of this sort with one another and it's really, really special. Can I just say? <laughs> Same thing with all husbands and wives. The marital act, according to, go, go to uh, New Advent, Catholic Online Encyclopedia. It is the act that sets your relationship apart as special from all others. It anoints your relationship. You get cumulative extra grace every time you have it. It's really important. So if your friends, one more time, are telling you to forgo marital relations for the next 18 years, tell them to take testosterone supplements, number one, because theirs is too low, and two, stop hanging out with them because birds of a feather flock together. I'm not joking now. I will say this before I continue reading, okay? This book, Ask Your Husband, brought the pain. It brought the pain. Brought the pain to the Catholic feminists out there, which are a lot of you, without even knowing it. And then those Catholic feminists did what they could to bring the pain back. It shook things up in a way that this book, which is a Sophia publication, a crisis publication, my book. I can't wait until we get called incels for this. Uh, case for patriarchy. I mentioned all this stuff in here, too. Manichaean incels, bro. Pro Manichaean incels. Steph is like Manichaean. female Catholic Clarence Thomas. Okay, okay. Here, oh, he right. finally when mentioned I, him. Okay. Yeah, there we go. A Sophia publication, a crisis publication. My book, a, a Case for Patriarchy, I mentioned all this stuff in here too. Did not. Why? Because you had a woman saying it. Steph is like female Catholic Clarence Thomas. The oh. internet's you know face melted Thomas. off right. when I mentioned a marital debt. <laughs> and a bunch of other stuff. Because you are the female Catholic Clarence Thomas for men's rights. Now, 
this is so what you're going to hear mr lucas saying over and over again in the next section i'm about to read is well steph mrs timothy j gordon may be right but right so he's becoming a butt philosopher she may be right but i don't want to talk about that she may be right but it sounds like a weirdo no no my friend low t guys you sound like the weirdos okay i'm not, i'm just telling you if you go hang out in a group of thick-necked roughnecks who are maybe catholic fall away secular guys maybe they've never been to church a day in their life they think you're the weirdo guys that joke about something that is near and dear to the heart of every man sexual relations not not disordered ones ordered ones men think about sex like a hundred times a day on average they think you're the weird one to even crack a joke that you're for i think about sex zero times a day thank you timothy going marital relations for the next 18 years i know you're going to say it's a joke adam when you see this it's not funny that is what causes feminism and divorce to run rampant to destroy the family. It's like okay? the same joke as like the, uh, like, let me go ask the boss type stuff. It's just, ugh, oh boy. Gross. Oh dear. <laughs> it is like, let me go ask my boss. No, you're her boss. Make her so ask true. you. That's so not, true. that doesn't make you a weirdo. Ask so your true. husband. <laughs> ask your husband. So true. What, so what you're going to hear him say a bunch of times is, I don't care what the truth is of the Christian teaching. What you're going to hear another iteration is, yes, the marital debt is a right. And a right is always a double right. It's the right of... Okay, I think we've got enough of that to get a get an outline, and then later he talks about uh, Saint Thomas as the as the common doctor of the church. I I didn't even get the uh, yeah I know rip to the rip to the Josephite marriages yeah um but yeah we just wanted to uh, highlight a particular section from Saint Thomas that talks about this issue because again Timothy if you're if you're watching. Uh, you you would have some pretty harsh words for St. Thomas um, because he definitely did not believe this no. at all. Like not even close. <clears throat> you so want to go? In, yeah. In, yeah. It's in this one. on the perfection of the spiritual life, chapter nine. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about, um, actually we can just read the, uh, does he give like a little introduction? He usually does. It's uh, next. Yeah, part. there you go. It is abundantly clear that the human heart is more intensely attracted to one object in proportion as it is withdrawn from a multiplicity of desires. So this this is going to be kind of the um, central uh, thesis right here uh, of St. Thomas, taking from St. Augustine, I think. But he's going to say that uh, in being drawn towards multiple things by our desires, we're going to be able to less... Uh, our, our ability to point ourselves towards our true end and uh, the the true uh, fulfillment of all of our desires in the beatific vision and then in the the common uh, joy uh, through the beatific vision that that is going to be something which we're not going to order ourselves towards the achievement of uh, as well uh, if we are drawn away by other earthly desires. This is why something like fasting is so important. Uh, fasting from uh, even good things. Uh, this is uh, something that St. Augustine uh, said in De Vera Religione. Uh, he said something to the effect that the Manichaeans, um, the Manichaeans fast because they think the world is bad. Uh, we fast because we think we are bad. Uh, that, that's the difference between uh, Catholics and Manichaeans when it comes to this idea of an ascetical life. We we renounce good things for the sake of a further good. They renounce good things in themselves because they don't think it is good. So this is going to be something that is the central uh, 
point uh, right here for St. Thomas and how he's going to apply it uh, to marriage here soon. Therefore, the more a man is delivered from solicitude concerning temporal matters, the more perfectly he will be enabled to love God. Hence, St. Augustine says that the hope of gaining or keeping material wealth is the poison of charity, that as charity increases, cupidity diminishes, and that when charity becomes perfect, cupidity ceases to exist. Hence, all the counsels which call men to perfection tend to withdraw his affections from temporal objects, so that his soul is enabled to more freely turn to God by contemplating him, loving him, and fulfilling his will. So even when it comes to these lesser good things in the world, uh, we're, we're, all called, we're all called to perfection. That's a universal call to holiness, uh, something that Garigou actually uh, exemplified, and, and, and that was brought in through his influence into Vatican II. So one of the very bright uh, shining lights of Vatican II was the fact that Garigou's doctrinal universal call to holiness uh, was something that was brought in, but that's for another time. But all, all men are called to perfection, and due to our states in life, some of some of these um, some of these counsels are uh, are remitted uh, from us, although we ought to uh, still practice uh, the virtue included in them. So, for example, uh, if you're married, you can't uh, you can't take a vow of poverty because you have to feed your family, but you still uh, can practice the virtue. Uh, that's concomitant with that vow, uh, that is, uh, by not becoming inordinately attached uh, to money. And it's the same way with chastity. While, while you're married, you can't uh, ordinarily remain chaste throughout your whole marriage. Although you're still called to the virtue, the concomitant virtue of chastity in not becoming inordinately attached to marital relations. This is this is a call for everybody. So and I, and I think this is something important to exemplify, even if you're unmarried out there and a lot of you probably aren't married. Uh, it uh, it says in Tobit um, when I always mix up the son and the father, the son is Tobias, right? And the father. No, no, the son is Tobit and the father is Tobias. So so when Tobit is taking his wife, uh, uh, the name of the wife is Anna. What's the name of the wife? You remember Hassan? Ah, whatever. When uh, Sarah, 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 yeah. yeah. When he when he's taking his wife and he <clears throat> kneels down to to pray before they go to bed on their wedding night, he says, "I've not taken this my sister in lust." Everybody should be able to say that upon their marriage. So, for those of you out there uh, who are unmarried and Catholic, it you, there, there's no way around uh, forming the virtue of chastity. Whether in marriage, outside of marriage, before marriage, um, uh, after your spouse, uh, if you die after your spouse and, and, it's, and it's after marriage, uh, the, the, no matter what, you're, you're, you're going to have to practice chastity. It, it isn't marriage is an excuse for the fulfillment of uh, basically marriage is an excuse to act like an animal. Um, that, that's not uh, what it's for. And. Uh, this is something which the, the tradition has quite clearly spoken on, and we're going to see this in St. Thomas. So continuing, he's first going to talk about um, the renunciation of earthly possessions and poverty, but we don't, don't really need to talk about that. And then the second, the, the second means of perfection, which is the renunciation of earthly ties and of matrimony. So let's uh, begin 
In order the more clearly to understand the second means of perfection, we should reflect on the words of St. Augustine, who says in De Trinitate 12, The less a man loves his private possessions, the more closely he will cleave to God. Hence, according to the order of the things which a man sacrifices for the love of God, will be the order of those things which will enable him to adhere perfectly to God. The things to be first given up are those least closely united to ourselves. Therefore, the renunciation of material possessions, which are extrinsic to our nature, must be our first step on the road to perfection. So basically what he's saying here is, as, as those things which you give up are uh, something which is are, are more dear to you, so also will you be able to uh, greater adhere to God, because those things impede uh, your union with God even more. The next objects to be sacrificed will be those which are united to our nature by a certain communion and necessary affinity. Hence, our Lord says, if any man comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. But it is permissible to inquire, as St. Gregory says, how we can be commanded to hate our parents and kinsfolk when we are bidden to love even our enemies. If, however, we carefully consider this precept, we shall be able to obey it by means of discretion. For when we refuse to listen who, savoring earthly things, suggests to us to do what is wrong, we at the same time love him and hate him. Thus we must bear this discreet, uh, discreet hatred towards our kinsfolk, loving in them what they are in themselves, and hating them when they hinder our progress towards God. For whosoever desires eternal life must for the love of God be independent of father and mother, of wife, children, and relations, yea, detached from self, in order that he may the better know God, for whose sake he loses sight of every other. For it is but too clear that earthly affections warp the mind and blunt its keenness. Notice right here. <clears throat> it is but too clear that earthly affections warp the mind and blunt its keenness. So the exercise of the marital act isn't something that somehow gives you uh, grace. I'm not sure what he meant by grace. It, it can, if you're in a sacramental marriage and you're in a state of grace going into the union, it, it can mediate grace to you, but <clears throat> only... But, the, but, some, but somebody who is uh, exercising it in the manner he was describing uh, no. is what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So ra rather than that uh, being gracious, it's going to warp the mind and blunt its keenness. Just doing it as much as you can because of the sake of doing it, basically. That would be yeah, the issue. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> So continuing, now amongst all relationships, the conjugal tie more than any other engrosses men's hearts. So that our first parents said, a man shall leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. Hmm. He says, so that our first parent says. Yeah. Out, of the, out of the mouth of our first parents. That's mm -hmm. weird. <clears throat> yeah, because so, Adam said it. I thought I thought God said it. Yeah, Christ says that God says it, but Adam in Genesis says it. Christ is saying that this was prophetically inspired to Adam. That's that's what it that's really what it means. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Hence, they who are aiming at perfection must, above all things, avoid the bond of marriage, which to a preeminent degree entangles man in earthly concerns. So at this point, we're gonna get we're gonna get the objection, which Saint Thomas is gonna deal with later. Well, this is just talking about like monks and stuff. I mean, uh, 
Catholic men who are married and Catholic women who are married, they don't have to follow this. They don't have to follow the uh, the counsel of our Lord. Obviously not. Uh, that that's that's something that's just for the the very spiritual members this, of uh, in clerics to follow. This is referring to people given the special grace of continence that we've referred to before. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's gonna he's gonna cover the fact that no, this isn't actually only for. Uh, it, the, the general uh, command isn't only for um, married, uh, unmarried people, but, uh, well, people with the grace of continence. But there's a way in which this is practiced also by married people. Mm-hmm. So he's going to clarify that. But first, uh, first things first, the, the, the sort of command to those who have the greatest gift, which is going to be the, the gift of holy virginity, which this was something which uh, was already decided uh, in the fourth and fifth century uh, through some of the debates uh, over the perpetual virginity. Uh, so it, I, I'm pretty sure there's, there's um, clear magisterial teachings uh, when it comes to the superiority of virginity over marriage. So this isn't something that. Yeah. It's um, dogmatic in Trent. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because the Protestants uh, denied it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's something, it's something which you, you have to hold to. So continuing. This is the reason which the apostle gives for his counsel concerning countenance. He that is without a wife is solicitous for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please God. But he uh, that is with a wife is solicitous for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Therefore, the second means whereby a man may more freely to devote himself to God and cleave more perfect to him is by the observance of perpetual chastity. But countenance possesses a further advantage of affording a particular faculty to the acquirement of perfection. For the soul is hindered to its free access, uh, in its free access to God, not only by the love of exterior things, but much more by the force of interior passions. And among these passions, the lust of the flesh does, beyond all others, overpower reason. So if you have, the, if you have this sort of mindset, uh, basically have marital relations as much as you uh, possibly can. Um, it, it is really difficult to to consider how how you can be a reasonable person because that the, just the effects of constantly giving in to one's passions and especially the the passions of of lust because it's it's the strongest and it's the most damaging uh, even more than uh, even more than food and drink and, and the like more than power or, or money really actually money is is more damaging because money you can have an unlimited amount so it never gets satiated this is something saint thomas talks about in the uh beginning of prima secunde but that that's that's beyond it but when it when it comes to lust the force of the attachment the force of of, of the passions is so great that it makes it very difficult to see how somebody who has not um cultivated uh countenance is able to um, reason properly, you know? So did somebody say, have to go now. Bye, guys. Bye. Sad. But hence, St. Augustine says in Soliloquies 1, I know nothing which doth more cast a manly soul down. (laughs) Oh, man. I (laughs) I know nothing which doth more cast a manly soul down from the tower of its strength and do the caresses of a woman and the physical contact essential to marriage. See, this is like, this is unironically mm. like the exact opposite from what he said. 
he said, well, if you if you want to forego uh, marital relations, you're low T, dude. Well, it seems like St. Augustine is saying, no, 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 you're low T if you just want to have sex all the time. This is the passage that St. Thomas uh, quotes explaining 1 Corinthians 7, 1, by the way. Oh, maybe we should maybe we should go over there next. The, the physical it doesn't look like Gabriella's, Gabriella's yeah. showing up. Okay, continuing. Yeah. Thus, continence is most necessary to perfection. It is the way pointed out by the apostle concerning virgins. I have no commandment uh, of the Lord, but I give a counsel as having obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. The advantage of virginity is also shown in St. Matthew when the disciple. Okay, he just trying to prove it. So I'm going to. Hmm. Okay, I want to get to the part where he actually talks about. There you go. If anyone should object to us, the example of Abraham and of the other just men of old who were perfect without refraining from matrimony. We will answer them in the words of St. Augustine in his book on the goods of marriage. So this, this is this is where the the discussion is going to turn to, okay, how about married people? Can married people uh, practice this virtue? And St. Thomas is going to say, yes, married people are called to practice this virtue. The countenance that is a virtue is that of the mind, not of the body. And virtue is sometimes revealed in deeds and sometimes lies distinguished as a habit. The patience of John, who did not suffer martyrdom, was equal to the in merit to, uh, to that of Peter, who was slain. And Abraham, who fathered sons, was equal to the countenance to the virgin John. The marriage of one and the celibacy of another uh, fault, each in their season for Christ. Therefore, any one of the faithful who observes countenance may say, I am certainly no better than Abraham. But the chastity of celibacy is superior to the chastity of the married life. Abraham practiced one actually, the other habitually. For he lived chastely as a husband and could have lived uh, countenantly had he been unmarried. Very important. If, you, if you're able to properly uh, form this habit in order to, to reach the perfection of the spiritual life, you should be able to, if need be, be countenant if unmarried. The marital debt is is meant to remedy uh, certain imperfections of lust. It isn't meant it isn't meant to keep a crutch uh, for you uh, for uh, for your bad habits. That isn't what it's meant for. The latter state, however, did not benefit the time at which he lived. It is easier for me not to marry, although Abraham married. And to live such a married life as he lived. Notice, it is easier for me not to marry at all. This is St. Augustine speaking. Although Abraham married, than to live such a married life as he lived. Now, now imagine, imagine saying that to somebody who, who's married today. Is like the if you live a, a of a marriage of countenance, it's it's easier for for um those married living in a living a, uh, a a life which is which has the virtue than it is for uh, some of those in the monasteries who have the virtue and uh and achieve it through a complete um disattachment from marriage this is something which is difficult and needs to be formed so if if you're out there you're a young catholic 
And uh, a lot, I know a lot of you, uh, you, you talk to me about it uh, sometimes, but a lot of you out there are probably considering uh, the religious life or marriage. Consider this. When it comes to the life of perfection, it's actually uh, much easier just to forego uh, the act at all. It's much more difficult to, to form the habit um, in, in the life of marriage. Something very important. Continuing. Therefore, I am better than they who could not, by countenance of heart, do what I do. But I am not better than they who, on the account of the different time in which they lived, did not what I do. Had it been fitting, they in their time would have accomplished far better than I, than which I do now. But I, even were it now required, could not do what they achieved. The conclusion of St. Augustine agrees with what uh, has already been said about poverty. For Abraham had arrived at such perfection that his heart never wavered to love, in love of God on account of either temporal possessions or wedded life. But if another man who has not reached this height of virtue strives to attain perfection while retaining riches and engaging in matrimony, he will soon be made aware of his error in presuming to treat our Lord's words as of little account. And he gives some, uh, is there anything in here that specifically relates to the married life? Um, you just missed the relevant paragraph. I, it was this paragraph re relevant? Yeah, this chunk, yeah. Okay. So now he, he goes in chapter 10. Eventually, I'd, I just want to make a video going through this whole chapter. I think it's really good. But he then who desires to undertake a life of countenance must chastise his flesh by abstin... 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 abstin what is this word? Abstention. Abstention. I've never heard the word abstention before. By abstention uh, from pleasure and by fasts, vigils, and such like exercises. The apostle sets before us his own conduct. As an example, in this respect, everyone who strives for mastery refrains himself from all things. And a little later, he adds, I chastise my body and bring in objection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. What the apostle practiced indeed, he taught in word. For after he, uh, warning against chambering and impurities, he concludes, make no provision for the desires of the flesh. He rightly lays stress upon the desires of the flesh, i.e. its desire for pleasure. For it is incumbent on us to make provision for what is necessary for our bodies. And the apostle himself uh, says, no man ever hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and, chas and cherishes it. Let me see. Keep the mind in prayer, study of the scriptures, occupy the mind with good thoughts, shun idleness and engage in bodily toil. Mental disquietude. Frequent, Frequent conversation with women. Hmm. Exactly. Many have perished by the beauty of a woman and hereby lust is enkindled as a fire. Do not and look upon right it. And then so right after for her conversation burns as fire. I wanted to, I'm going to talk to you about this uh, uh, later, actually. Something interesting came up recently. Um, yeah, because, yeah, Saint. Do uh, have I seen anything from Saint Dominic where he talked about uh, his one um, exhortation was not to have frequent conversation with women? Yeah, 
I was gonna. I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, something to do with this because you can you can talk to women safely, but it takes a lot of training, and the other person also has to know what they're. Yeah, doing. well, well, um, Saint Dominic just advises to write letters. Yeah the the issue the issue is to do with the fact that in Western culture and among the vulgar people, the even in the uh, even in the time of Christendom, right? Is that no, what you call? It? I'm you using call it? the word properly, right? Not. I'm, I don't just mean like common people, but people who live in a vulgar way, right? They they generally don't have the cultural measures in place to prevent the tensions forming that generally tend to form when men and women become friends. They don't have these things in place that stop that from happening. I remember we, we talked a while back about um, uh, the situation where in your culture, you can't be friends with your friend's wife in the same way as your friends with well, and in, in, even in an analogous way to the way that you're friends with your friend, because uh, in in a lot of Western culture, there's this underlying thing that if you're friends with somebody, they're at least Plan Z, right? Yeah, something like that, which is which is really bad because uh, that that mate evaluation behavior is not supposed to be immediate. It's not good. Oh, oh, oh here it is. Um... Yeah, they, Hence, it cannot be said uh, that it is good for a man as to his own individual uh, to touch a woman. First, in regard to his soul, um, then the second one. Second, as regards to the body, the fact that a man subjects himself to a woman by marriage makes himself a slave out of a freedman. This is the most bitter of all servitudes. <laughs> Hence, it is said, I found more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets. Oh man! Third, as to external things with with which a man must occupy himself when he has wife and children to be fed. Oh man. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to uh, find in here where he talks specifically. You missed about the Augustine to... quote already. The Augustine well, quote was up. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Augustine, there. nothing so casts a man down. Of his powers as that contact of body without which a man cannot a, a woman look at the look at the latin uh the latin makes it really clear that he's talking about uh contact he's not speaking euphemistically of intercourse secret contactus ille corporum sine quo um sorabere non potest like the That's very a, contact of the bodies yeah very contact of the hmm yeah i i i really don't like how most the translations will uh, say it's good for a man not to like have relations with a woman rather than not yeah. to touch a woman. In fact, there's even like um, modern biblical scholars who are saying that it doesn't refer to sex euphemistically anymore. Uh, like the like definitely people who uh, exo you know exoteric edemnic uh, in yeah the Numenite survey yeah he was he he mentioned that some guy what's his name I think Carson was his name oh D A Carson. Yeah, D.A. Carson, Carson said, um, try and find this. He said, the NIV reads, it is good for a man not to marry. The Greek literally reads, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The NIV translates, assume it's a euphemism for marriage, but more recently scholars have shown it's not the case. Apparently, there were Christians in Corinth who advanced an ascetic agenda. Paul is prepared to say there is merit in that perspective. After all, later in the chapter, he points out the, advantage of be the advantages of being single in gospel ministry. But asceticism is not the only value. Indeed, it may become an idol or a way of disparaging God's good gifts or refusing to recognize the diversity of gifts that God bestows upon his people. After all, marriage relieves sorrow.
sexual pressure, he says, to deny sexual pressure and cling desperately to celibate asceticism might lead to gross sexual sins as it often has. The societal answer, biblically speaking, is not open sex or lasciviousness, but marriage. And that is not the only value of marriage, of course, but it is a real one. And this is from his book, For the Love of God, Volume 2, A Daily Companion for Discovering the Riches of God's Word. Kind of some off stuff there, but you get the point. Yeah. Yeah. Since carnal desire remains alive in believers even after baptism, although it does not rule, it impels men especially towards venereal acts on account of the vehemence of their pleasure. And because it requires greater virtue to conquer this desire entirely than can belong to men, according to Matthew, not all men can receive this saying. It is necessary that this, this desire be in part yielded to and in part mastered. Yeah, that, that I, th I think that's a, I, I really like that uh, description right there in part yielded to, in part mastered, is that really um, by uh, exercising uh, the marital act, you're in part yielding uh, to, to the desire towards uh, venereal acts. But the assumption is that throughout your life, you're going to be mastering it uh, within marriage. It's not something just do it as much as you want uh, just because. Just because you can. Yeah. Because it's the platonic form of the marriage. Uh, mm. <sighs> let me, let me see. <laughs> yeah. Nat natural reason. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so. I'm, a lot of this stuff is just. Uh, a lot of it's unrelated. After this, he's going to go into the like asceticism in a bit more detail, but. I mean, the point is, um, I linked the book that you sent me from the Caliber archive in the chat. So anybody who wants to pick it up can. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the early church, um, and St. Paul counsels about this, so you can check what St. Thomas says if you want. But uh, if you look at the early church, when you, um, when you uh, became a widow or a widower, you were encouraged not to remarry. And the reason for this was because your marriage, the graces of marriage. And this is actually one of the arguments that's used for the sacramentality of marriage in the commentators on Trent, right? Um, one of the effects of the graces of marriage should be that what is received immediately in celibates when they receive special continence is received gradually through the marital sacrament and the graces of the domestic church. And then when your spouse dies, uh, if they go to heaven, they're celibate. And if they die and leave you behind, you ought to have the graces whereby to live celibately. If you don't and you need to remarry, then then that's fine. That's why St. Paul says there's no sin in it if you do, right? But but it's preferable not to. And uh, in, a, in a way, the marriage is a success if it enables you not to have to do so, right? So when you look at marriage like this as a kind of mutual ascesis, right? you can understand that the underlying vocation of the Christian is an ascetical one, right? It is necessarily ascetical. And so um, Christians are conquering by grace what ought to be in nature and more, right? And so when, when you get married to somebody, one of your aims, of course, is to make good use of the, of the marital debt in order to, uh, to realign the sexual faculties so that they're not pointing sort of like autismally towards the self, which is the main the main problem with sexuality is that it becomes self-directed, right? But it's uh, but you can also use the, the you also use the marital debt in order to keep it that way, right? 
you don't only use it when you think, oh, if this doesn't happen soon, I'm going to start having lots of temptations and intrusive thoughts, even if they're about your wife, because you're not people. A lot of people don't know this. You're not supposed to like fantasize about your wife. You're not supposed to you're not supposed to sit there and dwell on many thoughts about your sex life. Uh, when you're when you uh, even when you're married, you're supposed to um, you can think of these things for some just reason, like uh, preparation for the act or something like that. But you can't sit there and just mentally like pollute yourself, right? That, that's not permissible. You can't do that. You can't just sit there and, and stew in it for your own pleasure. When you understand that these kinds of things are the things that mar that the marital act is supposed to dampen. When you understand that these passions are the things that the marital debt puts away, then you can understand the spiritual and ascetical role of the marital debt much more clearly, right? And you understand that the the call to uh, to chase in your mind, and so that the the use of the marital act is so that when you're not doing it, when you're not doing things that are ordained to it, your mind is able to be freed up for the worship of God through your actions and through your prayers. If, if you're sitting at work and you start like fantasizing about intercourse, even if it's with your wife, this is not appropriate. You can't do that. It's clearly, uh, but sometimes it is accompanied with venial sin, namely when one is excited to the matrimonial act by concupiscence, which nevertheless stays within the limits of the marriage, namely that he is content with his wife only. Exactly. Do you remember the part in um, in the sumo where he talks about uh, pr approaching your wife in the two the two ways that he calls venial and mortal? Yeah, the the second way is right here. But sometimes okay. it is performed with mortal sin, as when concupiscence is carried beyond the limits of the marriage. For example, when the husband approaches the wife with the idea that he would just as gladly or more gladly approach another woman. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the yeah. Uh, what's the what's the can't remember. Oh, oh, no, never mind. That, that was a completely different uh, thing that I was thinking of. Yeah. So there's no concession, concession, and then no possible concession. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think that about uh, does it. Is there anything else you wanted to say? No, I, we should probably answer uh, Absurd's question. So Absurd is saying, wait, so does mastering the inclination mean not having intercourse or reducing it to zero? Well, no, no, not necessarily. It means that the tendency of your uh, desires to become self-directed goes away gradually, right? So then you're only going to be doing it in order to keep it that way. And eventually you get old, right? Naturally, you get old. Or your spouse dies. And at that point, you don't need it anymore. The, the, inclination, the inclination becomes so fixed upon that particular person that you don't want to you you won't want to do it in any other way because it doesn't become this self-directed merely physiological thing anymore it becomes completely united there's a part there's a really fascinating part where um uh, so thomas talks about the manner of love um uh the per perfect love here we go he comments on psalm 26 and in number 235 in that commentary you see him uh, comment on the verse, the fourth verse of that psalm, which reads, One thing I have asked the Lord, this I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may see the delight of the Lord and may visit his temple. 
by the way, this is the verse that Christ is referring to when he says that Mary Magdalene has found the one thing necessary, right? In the story of Mary and Martha. He says, the perfection of a desire depends on the perfection of its cause, namely love, which when it's perfect, first gathers all the powers together into one. That's super important and moves them toward the beloved. What we are talking about when we're talking about the dampening of concupiscence and the action of grace in marriage is that grace unifies man and brings together his powers. Uh, we were talking about this in uh, Christian's translations recently of the medulla um, of, of St. Thomas that brings together bits of St. Thomas for meditations for days of the liturgical year. We were talking about the manner by which uh, grace brings back um, not only the, you, the subjection of the lower powers to reason, but also the subjection of the very body to the soul, which is why, uh, which is why in the resurrection we have that maximal, um, the bringing out of the maximal loss of subjection of body to soul, bodily death, into a maximal state of the union of body and soul in glory, right? So uh, he says, for it is according to Augustine, the very weight of the one who loves. So your full weight is behind your love for your spouse when the love of your spouse becomes perfected. Now, a heavy thing tends to one direction without wavering. This is not so if the thing is not so well weighted. And that's to do with the disunity of your powers, right? But the divine love makes the whole man tend to God without wavering. Now, in the same way, grace, the power of grace in marriage, allows all of your powers to be directed to your spouse without wavering, but it takes time, right? For what have I in heaven? And besides you, what do I desire upon the earth? Psalm 72, verse 25, that's his quoting about the love for God. Now, St. Gregory says, the strength of love multiplies eagerness to seek. Anna the prophetess did this, who departed not from the temple, by fastings and prayers, serving night and day, Luke 22, verse, Luke 2, verse 37. And so it said, but one thing necessary. That's about the Mary and Martha story, Luke 10. So he says, one thing I have asked, that is one item, one petition. I desire one small petition of you. Do not put me to shame, First Kings 2, verse 20. So the principle here um, needs to be understood because uh, the marriage of the, soul, of the soul of the beloved to God to God is supposed to be directly analogous um, to the, the marriage, the fleshly marriage between man and wife, even elevated by sacramental grace. This is something that Pope Innocent III talks about in his, uh, he has a long treatise, which he delivered as a speech called uh, On the Quadripartite Species of Marriage. And here he says that fleshly marriage is like, the literal sense of scripture in that to understand the spiritual unions of the soul with God, of the hypostatic union and of the union of Christ with his church, to understand these spiritual marriages, you need to have something by which to make analogy. And that concrete, that concrete thing in nature is fleshly marriage. Now with this in mind, we can understand how this teaching about the full unity of the powers in seeking God is supposed to be analogous to perfected love towards any personal object, right? If you love your, and this is why St. Thomas says, 
marriage is the perfect friendship in summa contra gentiles because in your marriage to your wife all of the powers and the whole person can be directed to unity with the other person this is one of the ways that makes it analogous to union with god because in your your unions with your other friends this full union of body and mind is not possible but in your union with god every single one of your actions can become an act of religion because religion commands all the other virtues or has the ability to right so so this is uh, th this is basically the one of the purposes of marriage and the grace of marriage and the christian sacrament of marriage um something that i've uh emphasized a lot is that christian marriage is a, as a sacrament is a different thing ontologically to the marriages of the pagans and the muslims and the jews because they don't have a promise of grace annexed to their marriage the marriage is a very different thing it's not just like a, like a video game mechanism like our marriage is like ye to sit and gift into you or something it's it's a bit more than that in its very character it's different because it, it enables and commands the life of asceticism that we're talking about. Um, so this is this is everything that we want to we want to bring together. So true. Uh, yeah. So what do you mean by self-directed? Well, the the ultimate <clears throat> the ultimate form of the self-directedness of of um, the sexual faculty is going to be like masturbation, because this is a direct self-directedness of the act in, a, in an extremely visceral way. But other kinds of self-directedness are going to be what Christian was just reading from St. Thomas, where he talks about when you use your wife as a means of obtaining some pleasure for the self, either as a singular object, which is venial, or as one object among many, but this is the one that happens to be licit, which would be, which would be mortal. Because then you would be treating your wife as just the woman that you can have intercourse with, right? Um so um uh what do i okay so the things that uh that, that the next uh guy says saint Alphonsus condemns many immoral acts uh within marriage that many catholic theologians today consider licit and that increase lust rather than decrease it yeah that's this is part of the problem this is a big part of the problem and so like this is one of the things that timothy gordon i think is is the culture this is part of the culture that he's wrapped himself up into and a lot of this comes from the abuse of uh, Pope St. John Paul II's theology of the body by certain people. Um, chief among them is going to be this guy called um, something Popcack. You can find his, you can find his work uh, on, um, you can find his, his work. It's, I don't even want to name it. The name of the book is pretty disgusting. Um, have you heard of this question? No, nor do I want to hear about it. Okay. The, the basic thesis is that he uses St. Augustine's uh, writing, uh, love first and then do what you will, <laughs> right? Uh, so he basically says if you, yeah, Gregory Popcack. Uh, Christopher West isn't as bad as Popcack, but he does end up in different places saying a lot of the same nonsense. Um, Chris, the thing is that like theology of the body is primarily about the incarnation, the significance of the incarnation. Um, because Christ isn't just a generic man; he's a he's a male, uh, rational animal, right? Uh, and then this question about Islamic heaven—maybe uh, we can talk about that later. 
because uh, that's actually one of St. Thomas's actual critiques of Islam is, uh, is his, um, uh, what he knows about what Islam says about heaven. Christopher West. Oh my, bro. Bro, come on. Come on now. Okay, so I meant to, sorry, I'm, I'm changing the, the title to this because it kind of is like no mystery guest and we spent half the time talking about the marital debt. Where even is she, man? I don't know. She hasn't responded to me. Uh, the Wesley's asked kind of an important question. I don't want people to get freaked out, so we should probably answer that. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, okay, so let's put this very simply. St. Thomas says that for the individual, uh, the, de the desiring of procreation is not actually what's, like, necessary, right? You don't actually have to, like, strictly speaking, desire procreation. You just can't, you can't explicitly desire the contrary of procreation, right? So whenever you, whenever you, like, use the marital debt, you don't have to be expressly intending to, to produce children, right? Uh, but you can't intend contrary you can't intend with an exclusion to this which is why even saint alphonsus contrary to the narrative people are going to place upon him is going to say that relations with a pregnant wife are permissible right so so this is uh the the reason earlier on in church history why there were authors who would say it's not permissible to have relations with a pregnant wife is because not because they thought it was contrary to the good of of, uh, of procreation uh, in the sense that you can't conceive again, but in the sense that it was against the good of procreation because they thought it would damage the child, because they thought that you might conceive again and it would like mess up the embryo in the womb, right? So that's first of all. Second, um, you're asking about desiring pleasure. You can anticipate pleasure and consent to it as a good byproduct, but you can't go into the you can't go into the sex act with pleasure for yourself being the formal object you can't uh you can't just be like uh you know um what what i what i want to get out of this is is pleasure and so long as i'm not excluding procreation and so long as i i'm not like i don't think i hate my wife it's okay uh you have to be you have to be uh doing it with um you, you have to be doing it with the the in, with a unitive intention towards your wife to fulfill the duty and the good of fidelity fides in, in the text which is uh the primary purpose of for the individual of sexual intercourse is the good of the soul not pleasure but the good of the soul um uh it's different in marriage because um because sex is so much joined to um because sex is so much joined to uh, uh, the deepest foundations of concupiscence and it affects lots of other things. So this is something I was explaining the other day when we had that episode where we read that part of Scopoli. But um, all your affections are downstream from your sexual faculties. So if your sexual faculties get messed up, you treat other people badly, generally. Um, and I don't want to single out any, uh, you know, protected groups or anything but i think you know what i mean if you think about certain types of people um but uh basically uh, 
yeah yeah you know you know exactly what i mean people who have um people who have serious uh sexual vices um these affect the way that they treat other people and if you because remember that your food isn't a person right you don't owe your wife perfect love you don't owe your wife the movement of all of your powers the full weight of your being towards you that's what you owe your wife you don't owe that to to a piece of bread or a piece of or a piece of chicken or something right um when you uh desire pleasure from your food this is this the thing is that you should actually uh um especially during this month right you should attempt to treat food as something necessary for the good of the soul rather than primarily as a as a recreational activity by this month he means uh lent the the lenten season yeah you should you shouldn't try and you should try and uh uh you should try and more so focus uh the reason for your enjoyment of food upon the actual good of the soul and you should try and experience the material pleasures experienced as a certain signifier of the reality of participating in mystical union in this world and beatific union in the next in the next world because our enjoyment of food is supposed to be a certain sign of that reality the reason that we give it up when we fast isn't only to do penance and to satisfy but as saint thomas says there are two kinds of fasts there's a fast of sorrow which is about satisfaction for sin and there is a fast of joy which can be done on any day even a sunday or a feast day as long as the spirit moves you to it and the fast of joy is a certain act not of sorrow or of satisfaction but of attempting to um but is a certain act of um uh it's a certain act of anticipating the thing signified by the signifier and the sign this the signifier is going to be certain material pleasures and the thing signified is going to be a certain aspect of the uh love of god yeah somebody uh asked a question up here how exactly do temporal things uh hinder one's union uh with god since they're intrinsically good not competing with god so uh this is actually something which was traditionally answered uh, at the beginning of sentences commentaries because you know peter lombard actually most of you probably don't know but peter lombard at the beginning of his sentences and this is a um universal distinction for him distinguishes between uh on the one hand things and signs and the other hand's enjoyment and use and he says that, um, uh, and then uh, he says that our enjoyment is to be found completely and wholly uh, as in God as our final end. Uh, that's what he says. And he answers some uh, some of kind of some of these uh, questions uh, in here. So uh, he answers in the said contra. On the contrary, the notion of love is goodness, but every goodness is traced back to God's goodness, from which it flows and whose likeness it bears. Therefore, nothing should be loved except in order to God. Therefore, God alone should be enjoyed. And in Proverbs 16.4, God has made everything for the sake of himself. Therefore, he himself is the end of all things. Therefore, all things should be loved for the sake of him. And thus, the same uh, thing follows. And in answering the uh, fourth objection, he talks about, okay, well, how about loving a, uh, a rejoicing and enjoying a... Um, in, in this, sorry, I keep saying loving. I meant uh, enjoying. So uh, enjoying uh, another person because the apostle says, yes, brother, I want to enjoy you in the Lord. 
Therefore, we can also enjoy the just man and consequently any man who is according to the image of God and any created thing wherein is the vestige of God. This seems to be what you're asking. Uh, St. Thomas replies, one should not love the just man simply speaking. So simplicator, simplicator. But in God, such that the object of enjoyment is God and the holy man is representative of him as the very object of grace through its likeness in which God dwells. Nonetheless, it does not follow that one should enjoy in God a man who is sinful, because grace which causes God to dwell within one is not presented, present, present in him, and grace is an expressed exemplar of that highest goodness that one should enjoy. And much less does it follow about an irrational creature, for the likeness of being an image or vestige is insufficient for this, uh, whereas the likeness of grace is enough. So when it comes to our enjoyment uh, of things, our enjoyment of things are on account of them reflecting God um, insofar as they have being. Uh, so they participate in the um, self-subsistent being uh, of God. So in that they participate in him, in that they show forth uh, him, in that they reflect uh, him and his goodness, so do we and can we enjoy them. Now that that is uh, that is with explicit reference to God, and um, he's going to uh, cover this. I think it's down here. Um, this is on the Trinity, on those who use and enjoy. No, it's okay. See here, uh, there's going to be this. Uh, there's going to be this objection that gets brought up. Furthermore, it follows that no sin is venial, since if a thing is referred back to the ultimate end, then there is no sin. But if something else is established as an ultimate end, and not related to the ultimate end, then this is a mortal sin. Therefore, since every act of reason is for some end, that end must be the ultimate end, and then this is not a sin. Or that other end is not related to the ultimate end, and then it will be a mortal sin. Therefore, there is no venial sin." Although Hugh sins venially does not refer his work to God, still he habitually has God as his, as his end. So, mortal sin, uh, then he's going to explain this, uh, whence he does not place a created thing as his ultimate end when he loves it next to God, but he sins because of the fact that he is excessive in his love, like one who lingers on a path for too long, although he does not deviate from the path. So, when it comes to, uh, here it is, uh, I know he explains it explicitly somewhere. According to the theologians, no act proceeding from a deliberating will is indifferent. Uh, this is a human act, that is. For if it is referred to God, presupposing grace, it is meritorious. However, it is not so referable, it is a sin. And if it is so referable and is not referred, it is in vain. Moreover, idleness is counted among the sins, according to the theologian. So what you have uh, in these... Uh, uh, you have first this distinction between, on the one hand, placing God as your final end, and the other hand, not placing God as your final end. So if you explicitly and habitually place God as your final end, then that act is something which is united with charity and therefore enjoyable, you know, uh, meritorious, because it is something where you're enjoying God and enjoying God in things, because you're using them. On the other hand, uh, you can keep that habitual ordering to God's end, but fall short in one of your acts. This is something which is a venial sin. And then third, uh, you can both turn away uh, in act from God as your last end, 
and enjoying him and do that habitually as well. And that's a mortal sin. And that destroys uh, grace in the soul. So I hope that's helpful because you're, you are um, using these things. Uh, you're using these things. And it is an ultimate reference uh, to God himself as the one thing we're to enjoy. Oh, 21. Oh, man. You guys go off. Okay. So are you talking to uh, Wesley in the chat right now? Yeah, but I don't think he understands what formal objects are. So this is kind of too complex for me to really explain. So. Oh, yeah. So, so formal object uh, is going to be that which specifies a certain act. And, and that sounds really complicated, but I'll, I'll explain it. So um, let's think uh, real quick about what makes sight different than thinking. I mean, they're both, uh, I guess, certain uh, acts which intuit things. So I both see and know this uh, coffee cup right here. But what, uh, what actually makes them different? Because materially, the object of my vision is identical. Just like we may materially, uh, both in philosophy and in theology, treat of God. But what makes, what makes my vision of this cup different from my thinking about this cup? Well, the difference is the formal object. The formal object is that aspect of a certain thing which differentiates the habit from a different habit or, or an act from a different act or a power from a different power. So what formally specifies my vision of this identical uh, material object with my other habit is the formal aspect of light. It's the, it's the color. Oh, actually, light is the uh, technically the formal object by which. And then color is the formal object which. It's specified by the color. That, that's, what my, that's what I'm bringing in because light is reflecting off of it. On the other hand, when I think about this, I'm thinking of the same cup, again, material identity between the two objects, but there's not formal identity, under the formal object of intelligible being. I, I know this insofar as it is uh, as it is a uh, being and knowable uh, to me, uh, and it's something which is abstracted uh, from the the sort of sensible phantasm that's brought in by my um, senses. Uh, I don't really need to say sensible phantasm; all phantasms are sensible, but the phantasm that is brought in um, by my senses. So that's that's going to be what a what a formal object is with a quick uh, illustration. So when it comes to moral theology, this becomes very important. Because on the one hand, you can have a uh, a sinful, a mortally sinful act that causes somebody to go to hell, or uh, yeah, I guess. And on the other hand, you can have an act that is meritorious that rewards somebody the uh, the prize of heaven, and it can be the, a materially identical act. It can be the same exact thing. It's crazy, isn't it? But. In uh, when it comes to moral acts, they are they are specified uh, by the intended formal object. So when it when it comes to that self same identical act, if you're considering it under a different light, uh, you're considering it under a different aspect. Then it's something that can be uh, meritorious if joined with charity and referred to God as as your last end. So this is something which is hugely important, really, in in, in all of. Um, 
not, not to have an overly uh, mechanistic view of the way in which uh, morals work, because that that's just deadly to have an overly mechanistic view. So that's uh, it, it, did that make sense, Hassan? Yeah, I think that's that's helpful. But um, this this is basically the issue. The Wesley's asking. If you are desiring that other people give you affection or love for your own sake and your own pleasure, is that not sinful, at least uh, generally? Oh, shoot. Well, I mean, is is it something which is uh, reference? Does it, does it have reference to God? I think is the most important question to ask. Uh, what, like what goods does it have reference to? Well, that's that's the thing. The uh, the goods are um, like it, it's it's with reference to the good enjoyed itself, right? The actual mm -hmm. pleasure, the actual pleasure of receiving affection, as opposed to first order toward the other. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah. Um, he treats this in like one or two, where he talks about a beatitude being something that perfects you, therefore you should enjoy it. And also happiness is the ultimate end, therefore you should enjoy it. So the first one, uh, he says, something renders one blessed in two ways, either as what affects it, as is God, and one should enjoy this alone as the object of enjoyment, or formally, as the way in which whiteness makes something white, and one should enjoy this latter, formally speaking. And in this way, beatitude makes one blessed. And I think it's the second one that's more important. The object of an activity is, is its terminus and perfects it, and is its end. This is why it is impossible for an activity to have the notion of ultimate end. But because we attain the object only through the activity, the appetite for the activity and for the object is the same is the same appetite. Whence, if we enjoy in any way the enjoyment itself, this will be insofar as the enjoyment joins us to God. And by the same enjoyment, we will enjoy the end and the activity whose object is the ultimate end. This is just as I understand the intelligible thing, and I understand myself understanding it by the same activity. Mm -hmm. Does that like clarify things right there? I'm not. I'm not sure if it will help him. Okay. But the point. The point is that you shouldn't. Um, you should put um, like a, a relate in another in a relationship with another person. You should put the the diffusion of good from the self to the other is the end rather than the uh, the accruing of good to the self from the other is the end. Basically, that's what I'm going to say. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I have 10 questions starred. Oh, oh, chaste, chaste couples are nominalists. Okay. Oh yeah, did I did I tell you uh, the complete story of what happened last week? No. So I I got dubbed the stream, and and like I heard something coming from the living room. I was like, "What the heck is going on?" So it it was Augustine like kind of flipping out, and he was like, "There's a little gate out there, so he can't exactly get to my door." And he was like rattling the gate. I was like, "What's what's going on?" So I I go out of my room and I see him there, and he's just like flipping out and i'm like what's wrong buddy and of course he can't speak so he like can't tell me what's wrong and then he just goes like running into the living room 
and he and he like runs and then goes and slips on like some toy and falls falls down like like literally like banana peel like slip and fall no <laughs> and, and then he started freaking out and then uh my wife is like on the couch and i'm like what what is going on here <laughs> and then what what happened is my wife uh she's i, I haven't mentioned she's eight uh eight months pregnant but uh this story ends with her fine so just disclaimer uh but she was she was like walking around or something and didn't see like a certain one of his toys on the ground and she slipped and fell on the toy uh slipped and fell on the toy and um and augustine like sees her fall and then he starts like freaking out what to do he runs over here to try to like get my attention. And he's like out there crying for like two minutes and realizes that I'm doing something and I can't hear him. So he decides to run back in the living room. And Lexi says he like went up to the toy that like she, she slipped on and Augustine started like hitting the toy and like throwing it <laughs> to try to get it. <laughs> and then, and then, he, the and then he, yeah, getting revenge on the toy. And then he runs back here to try to get me. I finally notice like what's going on. And then I go out and he runs out right there and he slipped on the same exact toy that my wife slipped on. By accident? Yeah, the same exact toy he was just like beating up. Uh, so my entire family like bit the dust in five minutes. I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna try to say that he he slept on it on purpose to show you what happened to your wife. No, 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 it was by accident. <laughs> yeah. Hey, did you already uh give books on this? Mm -hmm. Did you already give books on this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, Wes asked a question up here. Uh what's your favorite chant? Gregorian or Byzantine? Serum. Serum chant so good. Hassan, you need the answer. I'm gonna need you to explain this thing at the end because he's still not getting it. Oh. What's your favorite uh chant? Uh old Roman. Old Roman. Oh Have my you hit it like no, I haven't. Yeah, it's similar to it's similar to Gregorian, but I actually I actually think that our form of Gregorian is not really what Gregorian was like. I think it's uh, if you look at like the Salem like project to revive Gregorian, it was very much affected by the sort of like purity of the notes in in modern music, uh, which I don't think actually was what the character of I don't think that was actually the character of uh, yeah so, that's. The, the collects yeah that's a good that's a good example also quiabitat that's a good one as well i will i will uh go right here to the collects and look at what their most popular video is i want the yeah. best of the best bro gregorian chant deum verum oh wait no they do a bunch of different ones yeah you gotta scroll down to find the popular one okay i will i will do this one okay go for it. this is wicks
so true. Yeah, you like it then. I do like it. Okay. So why not have effusion to the other? Effusion to the other. And diffusion. Like self-diffusion of the good. Yeah. Oh, why not have diffusion to the other as the primary end while it's your own uh, pleasure as secondary end? Well, if your primary end is ever any any sort of created object, then it's something which is de facto sinful. Yeah, he doesn't he does he doesn't really understand what it means to have like you know when we're talking about the intentions of the action itself and the intentions of the actor that are extrinsic. I don't I don't think he 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 understands what it means to have like a hierarchy of ends in the intention of the actor acting. Um, yeah, and I, and I think um, another thing to remember is uh, the nature of of habitual intention. So, um, and then also uh, first habitual intention of that keeps away from mortal sin. But secondly, uh, like a sort of implicit uh, intention that can happen is it's not like I, I, I pick up my coffee cup and then I'm ex explicitly like, uh, like ha having an explicit thought in my mind, like, okay, I'm lifting up this coffee cup for God. It's something that is implicitly uh, present. And um, yeah, so uh, that's, all, that's all I have to say. Mm. So it has multiple ends in a hierarchical hierarchical order yes and then the first one is is god uh oh dang you got called mr hassan too dang it i thought i saw when i first saw it i thought it said mr wagner and hassan <laughs> <laughs> yeah Muslims have great chance. Yeah, I actually when I when I like pray the office on my own, I don't I don't do it like I I don't do it with like uh, the ways that I've heard it done. I just do it the way that I'm familiar with chanting. Yeah, when I was um when I was a seminarian, we learned basically like a really uh simple like almost almost like recto tono um type chant. And that's what I always chant my office with. Mm. It's the easiest way to do it rather than knowing the tones for each psalm and whatever. Yeah, I, I think I think while there's strength um, to to having the tones, and there aren't that many, and therefore it can actually be like pretty easy. If you're if you're just like finding a place to, if you have to kind of just like find find a place to be able to just like chant terse or something, I. It's um, it can it can often become a hindrance to actually uh, praying your office and then to actually focus on what you're supposed to be contemplating. Uh, during yeah, I agree. That's why I I, I do recto tono, but then once I have a sense of what the psalm is about, I just do it idiosyncratically. Uh, it's the easiest way to do it. To, to, and also, you know, like we were talking about the concept of eubulus, right? Of the the affections. Um, the spiritual affections finding expression and furtherance in prayer um, through, you know, nonverbal uh, elements of your vocalization. Um, I, I do, I do think that idiosyncratic chant helps you to do that quite a lot. Mm. I've never tried it before. I mean, I, I think I kind of like on the 
Because with uh, something something with chant is you're able to uh, much better than normal singing, uh, be able to uh, in whatever tone you're doing due to a uh, difference in in pacing, uh, mm -hmm. and such, be able to uh, kind of alter your your tone, your your pace, your your sort of solemnity in order to express uh, something and still be within the same like range of what you're actually. Uh, supposed to be doing um, when it comes to what uh, tone you're using. That's why chanting will always be like superior in every single way. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, with chill stream, yeah, we were supposed to do it on Thursday. Uh, Eric texted me last second and told me he had like homework or something dumb to do. Uh, so we're gonna <laughs> shoot again for this Thursday, uh, probably like seven o'clock. Yes, I will. I will include the compilation. I want an acapella live stream duet chant. Oh, man. I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. Uh, I think I'm good. I think you guys are good, too. I don't, I don't think you guys want that. If somebody drops in a $100 super chat, I'll do it. No, I wouldn't do it. Okay, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it my own. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you give me money, I'll make Hassan do stuff for me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> doesn't even make it really, sense it really does like hassan hassan uh hassan feels feels uh so so um what's he about to say touched to help to help uh <laughs> my new my new baby coming and, oh, you don't, and don't my family, like bro. Come on, man. And, <laughs> <laughs> and to, and to alleviate <laughs> alleviate my Lenten sufferings, bro. He 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 feels so touched to help with that that he would. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to ruin your Lent by making it easier for you? He wants to make it more difficult for me because now I have <laughs> more money, more money to stop my desiring from. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you uh, you know you get you get money from uh, from the stream and then you don't spend it on alcohol. I, I yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly that's that's I'm that's kidding. what my that's what my my temptation will be. I'll have this hundred dollars in my wallet. Uh, I'll I'll be I'll be stopping by the store or something and I'll see that pack of Guinness on the shelf and I'll say, you know, I could really use a pack of Guinness. I mean, come on, it's it's fasting time, but I haven't. Uh, I probably I probably. I, I didn't like intend not to drink throughout Lent, but I think I just won't, you know, <laughs> be Loki thinking about dropping the hundred dollars to see the reaction. <laughs> me, 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 Loki ending the stream after the hundred dollars gets dropped. <laughs> um, Ooh, man, I'd be, I'd be such a troll if I did that. So what is, what is this guy? He needs to set up a reaction. You Catholic, Middle Eastern, British, Welsh YouTuber. Dude, the niche would be insane. What is? What are you talking about, man? Come on. Dude, your niche would be like, like how many, how many uh, Catholic, Middle Eastern, British, Welsh people are there? <sighs> like five. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. We have like still nine starred questions to go.
So what is the proper response to somebody intentionally disrupting mass? Should we use violence immediately, pushing them out, or what? Bro, not in the. You can't use violence in the church for something like that. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I don't think pushing them out is even like violence. No, but it depends what level of resistance that they give. You know. Yeah, I mean, if you're like dragging somebody out, that that's violence. But if you're basically just kind yeah. of like pushing pushing away, like ask yourself ask yourself this question: Would it would it be appropriate, like? in in a sort of normal uh i don't even know how to phrase this like I, I i just remember like when i was in high school and like stuff like that would happen and then like the the level of force that would like a teacher would be allowed to use to stop something like that you know if it's good enough for the school system it's good enough for the <laughs> like like that that sort of like violence is is what i'm imagining right now like the like if somebody's like beating the crap out of somebody right in front of your face and you're you can't just like sit there and be like well you know it's happening <laughs> like like if if by violence you mean like pulling somebody off of beating somebody up or like gently like pushing somebody out or like getting in the way or something like that then that that's completely fine but you can't just like beat somebody up in church like you just can't do that take it somewhere else so Christian, uh, do you ponder about wow, or I'm assuming you meant how, how you will properly rear your children? Like when we start seriously teaching your son the Christian faith and how will you approach it? Yeah, th this is this is something that I, I frequently think about. So um, when, it, when it comes to formal uh, catechesis, usually formal catechesis uh, is, is going to be something that happens when they're a bit older, uh, like maybe second uh first second grade uh basically when they're when they're able to start memorizing stuff really well uh is, is when you start a formal catechesis because you can kind of impart some sort of understanding i mean before that you can just have them like just purely memorize stuff because younger kids can just purely memorize um but a, a lot of the really early uh sort of uh catechesis that takes place isn't formal uh it's like i, I don't know when you read your kid bedtime stories, uh, you're, you're reading them lives of the saints or uh, certain passages from sacred scripture. They're, um, they are engaging in family worship with you. Um, the sort of conversations that you have um, in front of them, around them, and, and, and with them. Uh, that in the, in the early, early stage of life, that's going to be a really how they're, how they're catechized more by example and then incident than by anything more formal. And I mean, it's just like the way in which you learn anything else when you're really young. I mean, with language, it's more by example and incident and with like, uh, and with some mild like exhortations, I guess, like when you correct, uh, somebody who, who, what you correct a kid who, um, uses an irregular, uh, uses an irregular uh, verb form, like they would use a regular verb form. Um, and then uh, when, when they get a bit older than that, uh, that's when you begin a formal catechesis. Uh, start start trying, uh, start encouraging and bringing about like more, more private devotion that is a bit more uh, individual uh, rather than something which is completely corporate uh, with the rest of the family. Uh, formal, you bring about formal catechesis. That is, uh, in this stage, it's more about uh, going from a memorization, simple explanation 
the kind of uh, being able to uh, ha have a sort of dialogue about a certain issue and think through it uh, with them, kind of showing them the interior logic. This is going to happen like around like late elementary school and middle school. Um, and then by the time by the time you get uh, into high school, uh, that that's really um, at least in religious education um, that that's going to be when uh, they're, they're able to to kind of go from catechism level uh, to uh, more serious uh, thinking when it comes to uh, theology. And I mean, this this happened. I, I don't I don't get why uh, people get so tied in knots about that when you have all these kids, these high school kids like being autists about a bunch of other stuff. I mean, when uh, all, all high school kids are like they're, they're autistic about like politics or, or philosophy or or like history literature i mean why why can't they be aut uh, autistic when it comes to um furthering their uh knowledge of the faith so you, so you can definitely uh at, at that point um have it to kind of uh because i mean at that point i i absolutely intend uh to have the sort of conversation where they ask me about like well what, what about people who aren't catholic like how how, how do we approach that and um, there, there's a there's a bad way, a really bad way, and then a good way of dealing with that. Uh, the, the really bad way is to just tell them, like, to basically decide on their own. Uh, that is that is a really really bad idea, and that's what a lot of uh, parents are going to do. But on the other other yeah. hand, you have an opposed extreme, which is going to be the parent who just says, like, no, you can't you can't look at that at all. Like, don't look at it at all. Don't read about it at all. The the best is really to um is, is really to engage with them uh sort of in this study um it, it, in order in order that they may uh understand the the grounds of the faith in fundamental theology like okay this is this is why we uh, the, these are the um, motives of credibility when it comes to the miraculous when it comes to the old testament when it comes to history uh when it comes to all of these things now, now let's look at like I don't know. Let's say they want to know about like Protestantism. Okay, let, let, let's look at something uh, from from a Protestant to kind of get an understanding um, from a more exterior uh, point of view, and then let's critique it. Uh, that 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 sort of thing, where obviously you're you're not um, you're you're not giving them the sort of leeway and, and approval uh, of indifferentism, but you're also not uh, acting in in such a way as will. Uh, breed rebellion and contempt, you know. So I, I, I think that I think that's a very uh, good practice uh, when it comes to uh, being able to consider uh, opposed ideas in uh, well, consider opposed ideas in such a way as you're not considering uh, the fact that they may be true, but you're doing it as an exercise uh, in order to re-reflect upon uh, the truth of the Catholic faith. Uh, that's something which is hugely important, um, and that that's even something that you that you see a, that, that's a huge difficulty um, in, in Catholic higher education, uh, where where you you have you have people who will leave the faith left and right because they're not taught how to approach another idea. And, and I, this is actually like a lot wider than that too. You you see it in the entirety of the Catholic online landscape. Is they'll watch things like Gavin Ortland, um, and and his stuff against Catholicism. Or uh, any other number of Protestants, they'll, they'll watch all this, and they'll watch it as uh, from a position of neutrality, 
where they'll say, okay, well, maybe it might be true, maybe maybe false. I'm just going to hear out their case to see whether it's true or not. No. You don't go to decide whether the Catholic faith is true or not. That, that's something that's already established for you. You 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 can you consider the arguments um, in in order that you may uh, clarify uh, your own position and be able to more solidly ground uh, your own faith with somebody uh, who who is experienced. Uh, you don't just do do this on your own, which is why it's really important for uh, parents to teach this to their kids, and then also educators to teach this to their students. Uh, how how to interact with those other uh, positions, and this is this is what was so great about the uh, the the model of the disputed question um, is that they used error in order to better clarify the state of the question, and then also to be able to uh, just just generally um, defend the faith. You can go ahead, Hassan. About what? About oh the same question. Hello. Yeah, I know. I was just muting myself. Lexi needed the charger. Oh, Chill. same question. Same question. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have any additional thoughts, yeah. I figured you um, were, you're interested in this so stuff. In terms of like practical things and not just like pedagogical like method, um, I think that I um, I really been thinking a lot about uh, the the pluses and minuses of like the ideal homeschooling versus the ideal public school, right? And when I say, I don't mean public school, I mean like Catholic education, right? Mm -hmm. Like cooperative Catholic education or, or the unicorn good Catholic school. There's actually a couple in the UK. Um, and uh, I've also been thinking about things like, you know, at what point, if I want to homeschool my kids, should I think about, you know, actually getting qualified in teaching so that I can give them a good run for that you know or, or or having my future wife do the same thing uh should should she do that prior to getting married so that she has the ability to do that when the kids are ready right because she's not going to be able to study for like you know the pgc in the uk uh when she's got like a kid who's like six months old you know and then the question is things like what kind of age do i want to start introducing my kids to latin and things like that uh, and so it, when you put, when you think about a lot of these things and you think about the potential that we have to give the next generation of Catholics in our own families, um, it seems like we really shouldn't sell catechesis short, you know, that we should really do everything we can to prepare prior to having kids to give our kids the best that the modern world has to give to a Catholic child, not only thinking about the risks and the dangers of the modern world, but also what does the modern world enable us to do? What potential do we have now that we didn't have before that we ought to try to take to the fullest with our kids? And I think things like, you know, having all these books available for pirating on the internet and being able to buy books as well from all around the world, uh, bringing in books like, you know, Father Most's book on latin by the natural method and things like that learning some pedagogy for yourself uh being able to take the things that you learn and make them accessible to kids in terms of language and things like that um it's super super useful you know um we have uh the the girl who was going to come on today she is a good example of somebody who was catechized like very well by a catechist mother and a theologian father from a young age right 
and she's uh she was she was able to start getting into like actual philosophy and theology by the age of eight or nine she's been able to read latin since before she was a teenager you know and that sounds like wow that's crazy kind of thing but it, it honestly isn't that hard you just introduce it to your kids lives when they're young you know um that and, and it's not only about latin although latin is a is a huge gateway to our heritage right um that it's if you close that off you lose a lot right that should be used to everybody by now but it's also that um latin if you read the the ordinationis for veterum sapientia it teaches you to think first of all being bilingual in general and and or learning gaining facility in a second language in general teaches you to think better and latin in particular it's very well disposed to thinking you is teaching you to think well right and to articulate yourself well uh, i can't i i'm not very good at latin this is why i mess up when i speak all the time um but um yeah there's there's a lot of things that we have to think about giving our kids access to and we have because of the accessibility of information the accessibility of teaching the accessibility of church documents and things like that we have a lot more facility and therefore potential to teach our kids and so i think that young people who are thinking of getting married soon should really take this in mind how can I become someone who's in a good position to teach my kids the faith and understand how to impart to them the morality of the faith, despite a world that's you know very much against it, in a way that convinces them of the internal logic of the teaching, not just that, well, my religion teaches this, and I don't want the modern world to be like, versus my religion. I want it to be well, the modern world is telling me a bunch of stuff that's obviously stupid. And I know it's obviously stupid because I've learned the reasons why a contrary way of life is better, right? So this is this is the sort of thing that, that, that I think about. I think being, especially nowadays, being extremely prohibitive, like Christian said earlier, just telling them, no, don't go anywhere near that. Don't read that. Don't look at that kind of thing. It's not helpful. You have to you have to convince your kids of the reasons why certain things are bad and you can't just convince them by persuading them in and of itself you have to give your kids facility in reading and searching out information for themselves and bringing it to you and always being open to have conversations about the things that they're curious about if you're busy at a certain time then come up with a time literally like make an appointment with your kid oh after church this sunday we're going to be free for a little bit let's talk about this then that kind of thing right uh i know that um when i was being raised one of the problems um in my religious education when i was a small child was that uh was not that my parents weren't trying but it's that they didn't know where i was at they didn't know what i was capable of learning and they didn't know how much i knew and so when I would ask certain questions, they wouldn't know what to answer, not because they didn't know the truth of the answer, at least according to their religion, but because they didn't know how to impart it to me at the level I was at, because they didn't know what it was. If you're not talking to your kids about the religion, if you're not allowing them to field questions, if you're not invigorating them with a self-propulsion and wanting to learn about these things, you're never going to know where they're at. And you're never going to know what's the proper suitable thing to say to an attentive child you know um 
these are all like lessons that I've gained from seeing rights and wrongs done growing up. But um, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot more, um, uh, I think, to take into account here. Um, there's, um, there's also the problems with, um, um, there's also a lot of problems with things like, uh, this, there's a certain mentality that comes in when kids have access to a school where parents assume that things are going to get taught at school, that they don't have to teach themselves. <clears throat> For example, when I was in school, um, the schools had started teaching kids how to do taxes and how to do very basic things. Now, back in the day, they didn't used to do that because they assumed your parents would teach you. But as time has passed on in this country, they the parents assume the school's going to cover everything. People think that the their only duty is to buy their kids things and uh, put a roof over their heads and buy them, you know, the things that they need to study or whatever, not to actually be involved in educating your kids. By example, of course, when they're younger, but especially when they get older, actually sitting them down and teaching them. Um, uh, another thing that is really overlooked is that choose godparents for your kids who can help you to teach your children the faith. That's one of their roles, right? And you should integrate that by finding somebody to be the godparent of your child who's actually going to be able to do that job that comes with that task. Don't do the thing where you just choose somebody as a godparent for your child because you like them. Don't do that. Choose someone who's going to be there to help your kid, right? Uh, that's that's something that I've noticed. There's many cultural problems with the ways we use things in the faith that are not appropriate. Um, also think about things like um, uh, teaching your children with reference to the sacraments that they have yet to receive and the ones that they have received. One of the things that I know uh, a lot of parents have really failed in is that kids get baptized before they're old enough to remember that they were baptized, of course. But then as they get up, they don't, they never, they don't know that they were baptized. A lot of kids don't even know what baptism is until they're quite old. You don't, if you have to teach your kids about your baptism and your, and their birthday, I think one of the great um, traditions that I've heard of is actually having a baptismal anniversary as a celebration day in the home, right? Uh, so that your kids are aware that this is something that happened. My five-year one's coming up. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, uh, yeah, I know, Gonzalo. I've met people like that too. Uh, just You can just, um, and T Theodore, you can just call me Hassan. Yeah. Uh, um, you have to call me Mr. Wagner, though. <laughs> Magister Wagner. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, no. I'm... <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, just call me. Um, yep, just call me Magister Wagner. Oh, yeah. One of, one of the other things is that you should teach your kids something once you've convinced them that it's desirable to know about. Don't You shouldn't just drill things into your kids. You should... Uh, you should make them interested in something and then once they start asking questions then you start answering more of more of their questions and try to answer questions in a way that keeps them interested try to answer their questions in a way that keeps them interested 
and feeds their desire to know more about the thing but Pref not preferably you have to use the example of a, of a black pepper shaker before you uh, <laughs> on any doctrine yeah yeah you've been doing that a lot yeah i mean i just kind of <laughs> have to grab whatever i, I have in hand but yeah, like yeah I, i'm not sure I, why i'm holding these baby scissors <laughs> yeah i know i don't even know where the baby scissors are <laughs> something something happened i don't i have no idea why those are on my desk <laughs> But yeah, you, you you have to understand the way in which learning happens. I mean, that's that that's why I do stuff like that. Like you might think I'm being uh, silly or something. I'm not. Uh, that's literally how people learn. You you go from what is more known to you, what is right in front of your eyes, and uh, for you guys, since you guys are fully grown adults, although um, you know some of you aren't fully grown adults, but for you guys, I can abstract a lot more. But I mean, if I'm talking to an eight nine ten year old you you go from it and then you just abs you you kind of go up a little bit you kind of negate a little bit or like pull up a little bit like okay here's the here's the analogy right here and this and this is kind of what's different uh about it because because you're kind of like sowing the seeds in their brain of the ascent and then as they get older you, you explain more of the more of the mystery and that's just the way that um teaching always happens with everybody all the time uh, it, it never, never do you like just go there and, and kind of dump something uh, just in a word at somebody at once without uh, appropriating it all to to their their level of knowledge. And I, I experienced a lot of this uh, doing catechesis with children uh, when I was a seminarian. That was one of my duties and having to like. Uh, oh. Am I back? Yeah, you are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but uh, having to like explain uh, the basics of the dogma, the Trinity to like a 12 year old, I mean, should be able to do it. Everybody should be able to do it. Um, but going, going through an experience like that and, and constantly having to explain these different uh, doctrines, you, you, you understand a few things like, using pepper cans uh, to, to give analogies for metaphysics or uh, somehow involving the, the individual you're speaking with or, or the, the younger person you're speaking with in a sort of quasi-argumentative uh, type um, relationship where they kind, they, kind of, uh, they, they kind of see something which they have as a perceived contradiction and people don't like having perceived contradictions. So they're going to bring up this perceived contradiction, and then you're going to be able to explain a new aspect of the the doctrine to somebody. So, so you uh, definitely that is that is advised um, if you if you are uh, planning on having a lot of kids, try try catechizing kids one time. Uh, however, you may do it. Um, I, I know that was that was one of the the best experiences of my life for doing something like. The, this podcast because explaining stuff to you guys is kind of like explaining it to a 12 year old sometimes sorry about that but you know some of you are a little bit slow and, and you need a little bit of help there's nothing uh wrong with that the only thing that's wrong with that is if you stay like that and you don't uh compel yourself uh to to get to a better place uh, when it comes to uh, your formation in the faith
yeah, what Hassan said about, um, yeah, I, that and this is something I don't like um, in trad circles a bit is just randomly calling high clerics heretics. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll argue against Daily Bach all day, but like the throwing around the H word uh, without any sort of formal declaration by the church or um, perhaps if it's something which is so manifest, so evident, um, like if you have, I don't know, your bishop denying the, the divinity of Christ or something like that. Um, but a lot of the a lot of these errors are in pretty uh, high level questions with a lot of uh, w with a lot of ink that has been spilled on them um, that can be somewhat difficult to understand. So it's better to hold back. Um, does being a heretic depend on cannibal? No, no, no. A heretic is somebody, um, who denies, uh, something that has been promulgated, uh, by the church as an article of faith. Yeah. But the, t the title of heretic is given. Oh, somebody who pertinaciously denies that, not just that they have. Oh, okay. Okay. The, the title of heretic. Okay. I thought you were talking about. Yeah. 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 We shouldn't, we shouldn't go around calling people heretics that don't merit the title. And you only merit the title if you're a formal heretic, which is somebody who pertinaciously denies something that they know that the church claims to have infallibly uh, defined. It's going to be uh, next Thursday. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I didn't and, hear and that has to be somebody who once believed, accepted the church as an infallible rule of faith. So somebody like raised as a Calvinist is not necessarily a formal heretic. They can be, but they're not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Your Majesty, Mr. Wagner, do you plan for more debates in the future? Muslim, Muslim metaphysician equals Trinity. The other Paul equals Holy Scripture. <clears throat> um, when I when I did my debate uh, with Ubi Petrus, uh, I was a lot more worried about it before. Uh, I, I think I might have might have psyched myself out a little bit too much, um, and and I think I did really well, but. I just don't like debating. I, I just don't like debates. Um, because what often happens in what happened in the debate with Ubi uh, is that... Wait, get out of here, woman. What what happens... Uh, what, what, ha <laughs> what happens in these debates is that uh, the, the debate can only be as... The debate can only be... Um, in, in put out again gosh my connection's terrible but it can all, oh man i'm back am i back now finally mm. okay the debate can only be as illuminating as the sort of proportion of the concepts and terms and uh scope uh that's agreed upon between the two debaters so uh for example um there's a lot of things that I brought up and a lot of things I wanted to discuss with Ubi that he uh, didn't want to discuss. And I kind of let him, I guess, define the um, the scope of the debate, which you can call me dumb for doing that. Um, but I, I just kind of wanted to debate about something, you know, and not just bring up, bring up a bunch of stuff that weren't, weren't going to be able to get any sort of back and forth on. So the, the issue with this 
is that a lot of the people that are outside of the realm of scholasticism, it's very uh, difficult um, to to get into a debate uh, and to debate them properly. Because right off the bat, um, there is a developed uh, terminological uh, system in, in scholasticism that is is used for such disagreements and to describe such disagreements and to resolve such disagreements. So having to, uh, I guess, sort of sully scholasticism by putting it in common phraseology, uh, I, I think would be would would do more harm than it would good. And I think it would be more confusing than it is illuminating. So, yeah, call call me call me scared. Uh, call me call me lame, whatever. Uh, I, I don't really care, but I, 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 I just didn't like it. You know, I didn't think I did bad. I just I just don't like uh, the, the sort of format. Not material heretic then next Thursday. Okay. <clears throat> exactly. Debating is just rhetoric. So true. Okay. I have to get going, but I will. Yeah, me too. I will see you guys later. Goodbye. God bless. And remember uh, to, to fast and do penance.